Life is a blank canvas and you paint your own story. I'm Lee Rogers and welcome to The Blank Canvas. I'm going to be chatting with the trailblazers, artists, thought leaders, athletes, the entrepreneurs and creators, incredible individuals who inspire us to live large. Welcome to another episode of The Blank Canvas. Or if it's your first time here, welcome. You know, it's a mistake to look at successful people and think, well, you know, it's easy for them because of this or that reason. The truth is it takes sheer guts and determination to succeed on a grand scale. And there's usually some point where the person puts everything they have on the line. This week's guest is no exception. And fortunately for him, the gamble paid off. Radek Sali started out working the candy bar in his local suburban village cinema and worked his way up to operations manager of Village Roadshow. Radek joined the Swiss Wellness Group as operations manager in 2005. A couple of years later, he'd become the CEO. He steered the company from its annual turnover of $14 million to its sale 10 years on for $1.7 billion. Incredibly, just nine months before the deal went ahead, the shareholders of Swiss nearly accepted an offer of just $30 million, which would have left Radek bankrupt due to a $15 million personal debt. I directed many TV commercials for Swiss leading up to the sale of the company, in particular their campaign for the Rio Olympics. The staff culture was something to behold at Swiss and played a huge role in the success of the brand, and this was clearly driven by their inspirational leader. Radek's latest role is chairman of Light Warrior, an investment organisation with a mission to help fund and support an array of other businesses and entrepreneurs, particularly those with a positive societal impact. Radek is a big-hearted guy with enough enthusiasm to light up a small city. Please welcome to the blank canvas, Radek Sali. Good morning. Good morning. Great to see you, Lee. Yeah, you too, mate. Where are you today? We're at Flinders Farm down this way. We we actually live here now. Oh, wow. Fantastic. The silver lining, huh? It's a beautiful place to be. We're very, very lucky. Yeah, that's great, mate. Hey, uh, really interesting reading up about you. I know we'd met before and I'd worked with you while you were the CEO of the, the Swiss Wellness Group but um, found it really fascinating reading up about you and your parents and how you grew up and how you wound up at Swiss. And it's a really cool story and I'm excited to share it with the listeners today. Something that really came to mind that was fascinating was I've always thought it's so unfortunate that there's more money in ill health than there is in health. That, you know, the big drug companies, the pharmaceutical companies and the other sort of vested interests of always made so much money on that line and I sort of put myself in your shoes and thought wow okay back 10 15 20 years ago and even with your dad who was a doctor and apparently he wrote one of the first papers on diet playing a huge part in chronic diseases and and ill health and so it was very cool that you kind of picked up that mantle in a way and followed through but I found it all the more impressive that you managed to turn a wellness company into a billion dollar company and you know make a lot of money which is fantastic but tell me about that and tell me when you launched into following the wellness path did you think wow there's money to be made here or did you think this is something that's deep in me that I need to follow through 
on my dad's sort of goals and wishes, but I probably won't make any money. <laughs> how did that how did that roll? Well, I think it's a blend of, of both, really. I feel like I'm living my purpose um, and, and I've still got a lot of work to do to, to finish that off. But, if yeah, if you take me back to my childhood, I did grow up in a pretty unique situation. My mum's a medical scientist and, and she would uh, read blood for the kind of nutrition you have in your blood and, and help my, my, my father's patients be as healthy as they could be by getting the nutrition content right. And so my father... He was really different in more ways than one. He's Albanian background, mum's Czech background, and both are migrants. have come from either migrated directly themselves or their parents migrated in my dad's case, and he grew up in Shepparton. I think he's the first uh, medical professor from Albania uh, globally, so uh, pretty unique stuff there. And he was the tomato picker in our offices today where Light Warriors base is in the Rosella building, and dad drove up to it and he said, oh, this is where he used to drop off tomatoes back when he was a 16 to 18-year-old driving up with his brothers. So, so yeah, to come from Shepparton with a unique background and then even to go from Shep High to, to study medicine, you had to be pretty different in your thinking. And Dad, from an early age, early time in doing medicine, he quickly kind of got on to the fact that it's not just about fixing things. There, there are other issues that could be causing chronic diseases. So back in the 70s, he... He started research on diet causing disease and he was laughed at and it took 20 years for that to be published um, in the British Medical Journal and the respect for that and you know if you kind of look at back on that now everyone kind of thinks that's pretty common knowledge but it wasn't back then and, and so to grow up in that environment and to see how much that troubled my father to kind of get that work published and to be known for that I saw a lot of frustration and so I, I kind of went, well, I'd love to contribute to the space, but that's got to be an easier way and, and being an entrepreneur in the space feels like it's proven to be that in some way. But if I look at my father's body of work over his lifetime, he's, he's 80 and he still works harder than I've ever worked as a CEO and still sees patients and lives and breathes it. And it's published down over 400 different research papers. You know, he published works around meditation and treatment of cancer in helping cancer the patients deal with you know, the onslaught of cancer and also the treatment of cancer through the process, again, back in the 70s. So really different thinker that would eat really healthy at home, stuff that no one else was eating outside of that family. And, and you know, we'll do things like a creative dance, yoga, and Japanese ink brush painting as kind of hobbies on the side. So what I thought was normal, I quickly understood was pretty unusual. Wow. Sounds like a, a very cool family and he sounds like a great man. Creative dance wasn't that cool uh, at 12 years old. <laughs> 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 it, was, it was okay to talk about Japanese ink brush painting. <laughs> uh, oh, that's gold. It kind of reminds me of my wife's family because she grew up in a very alternative-minded family. And, in fact, she was telling me the other day, I, I mentioned you and your story, and she reminded me of a story of her grandparents. Her, her grandma literally in the 50s took a loaf of brown bread to Canberra, to Parliament House, and said, this is what you should be feeding your nation. Because because <laughs> it was just, you know, white, you know, processed bread at that point and basically her saying, you know, yeah. <laughs> you need to improve the diet and nutrition. But that kind of sums up Kate's family and grandparents, you know, they were nudists, they were Buddhists and, and later on they were Scientologists, but they carved this very alternative path looking for answers both in the health and spiritual space. 
and they found answers and you know the Sobrano family is you know as we know gone on to to great things there was a few parallels yeah with the different thinkers that make a difference so we need more of that in our lives to keep progressing forward provide great inspiration yeah I think so totally mate so Look, tell me, we'll do, let's do a quick version because not everyone knows your background. So you're at school, you don't want to be a doctor and do what dad does. Just give us a, a short overview of what you did when you left school, what you studied and how you wound up as CEO of Swiss, the wellness group. Uh, so, yeah, so I loved school, loved working. And um, there was, wasn't a day where I wouldn't be earning pocket money of some sorts. So I started a, a paper round. Uh, at, at around eight years old <laughs> and, and would do that every day. Um, never missed a day on sick leave because, you know, the one day I did take off was my first sickie and I went fishing down at St Kilda Pier. I felt, still feel terrible for that, never done that again. <laughs> um, and then after that, a myriad of odd jobs. Could never get a job at McDonald's because the manager couldn't say my name confidently and I wanted to work at McDonald's. I managed to get into too many other areas, including Village Roadshow, which was a really exciting place to work. And I started at Doncaster Village Roadshow. I got interviewed by the CEO, which was great. And he asked me, which village do I want to work at? And I said, Forest Hill. And he said, that's a Hoyts. So that was a great start to my career at Village. Um, But I kicked off at Doncaster and I finished school around the same time. And it was a great job to work in because, you know, you're working in the movies and there's new product every week and there's great dynamic marketing going on. And, you know, people are around your same age, majority of people, and it's just a fun industry to be a part of. And then at the same time, you know, as I was finishing school, I got into university. I didn't do as well as I should have at school. I probably got a bit distracted by all the the other fun things in life that go on, but that was okay. I managed to get into La Trobe, which was a fantastic university to go to after you know, a private school that was probably more right-wing in its conservative in its views, La Trobe's very left-wing, um, and introduced me to unionism and found me kind of sitting sensibly more in the centre. But so what I quickly realised is I was paying for this university course, then I was getting paid to work at a multinational that was generating almost a billion dollars a year in revenue. And so I quickly realised that I could get paid to learn the craft of business. And I would take my work very, very seriously, whether it was chop topping, upselling popcorn or cleaning cinemas. I made sure I did it extraordinarily well. And quickly I'd become a supervisor and would go on to other sites and basically open every village uh, multiplex in Melbourne and would get to go internationally with that as well and open uh, sites in, in the Czech Republic and manage sites in Germany as well as uh, Switzerland, all at the ripe age of 23, 24. So it was an extraordinary apprenticeship in business and I lived for it and loved it. Yeah, I had a social life, but it was very heavily intertwined with work. And the balance of that was that I had to learn very quickly to be the same person outside of work as I was in work, which is a good bloke. And, and so and garner respect in asking people to do things through understanding what drives people, what gives people purpose. And so that was a great art form to learn early and also to get onto the fact that um, your part-time work could be uh, as valuable as a university work. So I finished university and got on with this apprenticeship of over 10 years at Village Roadshow, quickly getting to a point where you know, we'd had a very young CEO of the organisation and that had gone well for the first couple of years, but it went off brief for a little while and Village you know, went through a period of, of recalibrating. 
after, you know, David Eves and, and so forth, the onslaught of different competition coming into the market, which, you know, looking back on that now to what it is <laughs> today, I think it's even more challenging in the, the cinema area. So it was quite clear to me that they weren't going to appoint another young CEO and I needed to go and find experience somewhere else. And, and so for probably two years I travelled around the world and spoke to various people about what industry to work in, even going to China where the company that eventually bought us at Swiss in Guangzhou was looking to open uh, gelati stores in Guangzhou. And so it was pretty unique to eventually sell Swiss to a company in Guangzhou some 15 years later. And so this network of friends through dad and, and family, you know, through Swiss was there and many others in nutrition. Um, and that's because dad would always be there as a mentor and, and support those in, in that space. And his greatest challenge was to find quality providers in the space. Back then, 20 years ago, when he was advising patients, over 20 years ago, patients on nutrition, it was very difficult to find something that, you know, had on the bottle what was in the tablet. And Swiss was one of those companies that would listen to his advice carefully and um, and deliver on, on a quality product. And he could recommend it, knowing that everything was done to a standard that would get the right outcome. So we had a great relationship and I got to know Michael, who was the managing director of Swiss. And... He'd tried for a number of years to get me across from Village and timings became right and I joined as operations manager and two years later I was general manager and quickly CEO of the business. Wow, mate, what a story. Plenty of hard work in there and really impressive trajectory there. Now, congratulations on what you did with Swiss. Pretty extraordinary and as I touched on earlier, I used to think, oh, you know, it's so hard with (laughs) vitamins and health brands but clearly you were kind of ahead of the curve there and the marketing nous that you brought to the brand was timely and was really effective. So tell, tell us, what were the first things you did when you got in there? You were, obviously you, you tapped sort of celebrity ambassadors and heavy TV advertising. They were the obvious things that you could see and the things I worked on with you later on in the business. But tell me when you arrived, what were some of the first things you did where you kind of went, okay, guys, this is actually potentially a massive brand. How did you communicate it? And what were the first things you did as a CEO? Yeah, I think that the thing I brought to the table was big company now but with the smarts of making it dynamic and, and suitable for an organisation that had got to $13 million worth of sales, which for me, now in the investment space and investing in startups, that's the really hard part is getting your first $10 million worth of sales. So I was pretty privileged to walk into an organisation that had that greater foundation, and that meant that the product was a very good product. So, And pharmacists would say this to me, that, you know, Swiss sells itself because once people try it, they notice the difference and they keep coming back for it. So we'd hear that. And so the product was strong. And then the other part was my my managing director, whether this was what he meant to do or is he a little bit paranoid at the time that I would take the ideas and go and replicate what he was doing. But he wouldn't, as operations manager, I, I wasn't allowed to see financials for the first six months of my time at Swiss. Um, so I had to work out how the hell am I going to make the difference and shift the needle on this place if I don't know what the financials are. And he, he wisely gave me a really long induction program where I did a uh, manufacturing warehouse and the best spent time was going out and visiting customers in the pharmacy space. And I'd walk around the pharmacy floor and the first thing that stand out to me is that 
the, the most beautiful space would be the beauty area, um, the cosmetic space lit up and, and advertised beautifully and, and looking uniform in the way they present as a lifestyle brand. You walk over to the supplement space and it was land of the dinosaurs. It was hairy hippies and then a whole lot of health claims that were based on things like IBS, um, this will help with IBS, is irritable bowel syndrome. This one's going to help with UTIs, uh, urinary tract infections. And to me, it was whilst there's you know, health functions that were really useful, but they're not sort of things you'd talk about at a barbecue and go, hey, what are you doing for your UTI? <laughs> and, and hence that lifestyle factor for me became really, really obvious. And and then the other thing that would hit me when I go to the barbecue and tell them I'd work at Swiss, I'd say, oh, what, the embassy? We didn't have a brand that people recognised. Uh, and then I'd say, yeah, we work in vitamins. And they'd, they'd either change the subject really quickly because, you know, they're worried about what we'd start talking about or they just didn't believe that vitamins could make any difference. Or they would say to me, oh, yeah, I take Centrum, uh, the one that Rob DiCostella um, is the ambassador of. And funnily enough, when I'd go to those pharmacists, I'd ask them, why do you give so much space to Centrum? This was the biggest selling product in the category. I go, it must be because they give you the best profit margin. Go, no, no, no. They advertise every day of the week on TV and they give us great point of sale. And there's a picture of Rob DeCastella holding a, a, a Centrum bottle. And so, and the formulation of a Centrum is, is a good solid formulation, but it's kind of a, a good starting point. And, you know, Put it in perspective, the formulation of the Centrum tablet compared to the Swiss tablet at the time was about uh, 10 times the difference per tablet um, just because of the amount of nutrition that was in the Swiss multivitamin. And they wouldn't say to me that once they took a Centrum brand that people you know, notice a difference. And so a big point of difference was people would notice a difference. So when you've got a great product and you know that it's really differentiated compared to the rest of the marketplace or the, the leading alternate, the best thing you do is go and market it. So... We worked out a way to market it. We had a relationship with the dietitian of the Australian cricket team and we'd provide product in kind for, for us to be able to say we're the choice of the Australian cricket team. And we wanted to market that and they said, well, it's going to cost you a whole lot more money. So I gave Ricky Ponting a call and I said, hey, you take Swiss. Do you like the product? He, he said, yeah, it's fantastic. Would you like to do a deal with us where we, we have you as an ambassador? There's no one else in the category actively chasing ambassadors. Can we do a deal that works for both of us? And, and we managed to get one away and we made an advert. Actually, it was three adverts and we had a budget of a million dollars to spend on TV. We made the three ads for $50,000, Lee, so it was pretty cost-effective. And I knew we'd made it because I drove into to work and Nova was on and Husey and Kate were talking about the most annoying adverts on TV. And ours one kept getting voted in. It, you know, it was, it was Ricky doing housework and, and, you know, speeding up his housework because he had taken a Swiss product. <laughs> it was a terrible ad, but it got us cut through and it was, it was a great start. And I was so wrapped that we won actually most annoying advert of the summer, <laughs> which was fantastic. So, yeah, so the marketing product and the positioning was really paramount to our success and they were kind of the obvious things that we built on and, and Ricky became the first of many ambassadors, over 300, that would work with. But the real secret to our success was our culture and and thankfully my two business partners, Michael and Stephen, were really focused on this from the outset in creating the company and making it a great place to work. But the organisation needs to transition into a group of implementers with two founders that were heavily hands-on and setting the direction to a group that had a people that were empowered to make decisions on the area 
that they would manage. And the business had struggled to go beyond the growth of 13 to 15 million bucks until we, we restructured and brought in leaders that could make decisions around parameters on their own accord rather than it relying upon Michael or, or me for a short while, having to sign off everything and reread everything um, and essentially letting the business uh, evolve into an organisation that was clear on what it needed to achieve through strategy and had focused KPIs uh, that were not just focused on the financials but on the culture because culture creates that team environment and it creates purpose in an organisation. It creates the why we do things. And as the one thing that will keep me up at night is how people felt about coming to work. And so if you feel great about, you know, say you're in a relationship, if you feel great about that partner and that's fantastic, you have a great relationship where you, you bring out the best in each other. And that can be hard sometimes, um, which is good, but as long as you get to a better place as a result of it. But we've all had that partner where, you know, you, we're finished up with them and your friends have all said, oh, gee, you were terrible together. And you sort of say, why didn't you tell me at the time? And I would tell you now, 80 to 90% of people's working lives are like that bad relationship. Businesses will perform better if we focus on this culture. It's something that it has changed a lot, but, you know, 20 years ago, it wasn't the next big thing culture. Yeah, mate. Thanks for those insights. Yeah, i got to say, having done some work with you guys, it was astonishing the culture that you built and the sort of, I guess, the staff um, vibe that you would experience when you went into that building and when you were working with your staff. They were very enthusiastic about going to work. And you're right, you must have found a great way of empowering them and giving them some ownership to what they were doing, but, you know, setting clear parameters and everyone had that feeling that you were winning and you were onto something, you were helping people, the company was expanding, all of that. So it was interesting. When I first came along, there was a few of those kind of buzzwords around culture and all the rest of it. And I'm like, oh, I'm not so sure about all of that stuff. But then the proof was in the pudding. And I was kind of like, okay, well, if you're creating something new, sometimes you have to come up with new terms and nomenclature if you're trailblazing. And, you know, you, you manage to do that. I mean, I can't stand it when you go to a business seminar or something and they hit you with all these buzzwords and you don't really know what they are and, you know, it makes the person sound really important and smart and all the rest of it. If they don't follow through with it, then you get out of there and you're just kind of like, okay, wanker. But at the working with you guys, you totally followed through on what your claims were and, um, you know, hats off to you. It's not an easy thing to scale a business like that, is it? No, and that's the thing is authenticity. You, you really need to find your own natural swing in how you live out the values of an organisation. And, and we would talk about our business plan every quarter, but we'd talk about our culture as well and how we're progressing around that. And we'd also break down uh, the meaning of that culture into examples and, and examples that would be shared by area because your warehouse team member and living the values and, and expressing them in the way that, that they can in their environment is going to be really different to your marketing team or your sales team. So you need to break it down and make it digestible for people and allow people to stay authentic. But the one thing that we, we had sort of a non-negotiable around was around choosing positive, constructive language. So everyone's been to a personal trainer at one stage or another or, or heard about the idea of it and if you go into a personal training session and they say to you look it's 10 push-ups and if you start doing those first 10 push-ups and they say you look tired today you're not going to get through this you're not going to feel great about doing that session and again i just go back to a lot of workplaces there's so much negative language 
and it's not constructive and it's exactly like that personal training session why can't we lift people up why can't we be constructive and you know so we'd replace words like problem uh with challenge and you know we would instead of saying people got something wrong would say it's an lgi moment learn grow grow and improve moment that came from our production manager when we were <clears throat> trying to work out how we could improve something and or why something had gone wrong and he came up with it in that that moment so our team would come up with these sayings that would put a smile on your face they're a bit dorky you know have, we're making people healthier and happier or, or saying it's a h and h day and it was done that way on purpose um so again it would take the heat out of what normally would be a, a confronting negative conversation into something more positive and hopefully constructive and let's face it in australia you know we're very lucky that the majority of businesses don't have problems like you would see in the less developed world so we, we try and focus on how we can come up with solutions to deal with whatever challenge we'll face with yeah did an amazing job mate yeah it's a it's a really interesting balance isn't it between being the ceo and being a good bloke and also you know having to be honest and have those tough conversations with people you can't pussyfoot around some conversations can you give us an insight into how you might have one of those tough conversations with an important staff member who isn't, you know, delivering on the stats that they should be? <laughs> Look, I think that you have to set the expectation that you're going to have honest conversations. And funnily enough, in any values conversation we have with the team or any business we have today as well, the first thing that comes up is people want honesty. And I think that saying, well, okay, we can have honesty, but it's a two-way street is a really really important thing and then i try and use examples um, and you'll still notice me using swiss jingo because instead of i i tend to say we uh, because we're a team and we're always responsible for whatever outcome and ultimately me as much as anyone in the team are responsible for for what may go right or wrong so whenever giving feedback to someone on how they could possibly improve i'd be talking about we and i'd take ownership for my part in something falling over and i'd also would talk about whenever i presented to the group about how we were going which is quite regularly as a business um, and more regularly when we weren't going so well mind you i would talk about my errors that i'd made and how i'd let down the team so then it would give permission for the others to have hard conversations with their team members and and would also create uh, a whole lot of situations where rewards were linked to uh, performance so that would mean that the manager would have to sit down with whoever reported to them and say how are we going and what's going well and what's not and because it's going well you're going to be rewarded with an extra day off this month or or you know you, you can go to a personal trainer on our behalf or yoga or you know lunches will, will be on us um, so we'd link everything performance and until we did that it was just people took the culture for granted um, so the honest conversations are a necessary part of creating a high performance culture but it's also it's a two-way thing people will only perform if they feel like they're included and getting something out of it so you're ever challenged as a leader to keep bringing your best and and i just liken it to sport and say a game of football where there's four quarters and there's a coach and if coach comes out and talks to the players about structures and what they can do well and what they could do better and and if you sort of play biting back and not accepting that you would know that that team is probably not performing to an optimum and we should have that same level of permission to talk about our performance in the workplace and feel safe about it yeah that that's cool mate hey um i'm going to talk more about some of the big successes in a minute but before we move on to that is there an example of a time you got it wrong and you talked about mm -hmm. that to the team 
Yeah, many times. And so a good example will have been when when we we launched in the USA and we, we ended up with $70 million worth of debt and and we, we were supposed to go into uh, over 30,000 retailers and we were launching on the Alan DeGeneres show. We had Nicole Kidman on the show. We had Alan coming out to Australia, thankfully. We were really stretched. We didn't have enough team members to do what we were trying to do, but it was difficult to say no to that amount of retailers that wanted to launch us in the US and bring what we were doing in Australia to, to a new market. And then at the same time in Australia, the majority of our business had shifted to grocery and the margins in grocery, they had made us pay for that shift. And whilst we needed them to help us become the number one brand, the lack of focus on our promotional pricing and so forth meant that our profit margins had faded away in Australia as well. So we had a, you know, a $300 million business with zero profit and $70 million worth of debt. And so I had to report wow. every week um, to the team on how we were progressing on that. And I would cop that sweat uh, each week on, on the fact that I'd got things wrong and this is the consequence of that. And, and I need everyone to help me and the team uh, work, work through it. Wow. Holy shit. That's um that's quite an answer. That was that was more than I <laughs> more than I was expecting. That takes some uh, yeah big balls to own up to that one. That's astonishing. I didn't know that was happening in the um in the background. Yeah, probably while I was you know making ads for you guys here in Australia. <laughs> wow. That's uh, yeah. So I, I think that there's probably three or four times I should have been fired, but yeah, I managed to get through. <laughs> wow. Wow. That's incredible, mate. That must have been an extraordinarily stressful time to say the least how did you manage to deal with that kind of stress i think uh controlling the controllables in life so making sure that you know i I stopped drinking uh which when we were a little stressed we perhaps can drink a little too much and i knew i needed to be sharp basically sharp as i could be every day of the week so i couldn't afford having one too many drinks on a friday night i exercised every day and part of that exercise routine would be to go for a walk with my wife and the two dogs at that stage. Uh, now, 10 years later, we have a, a young two-and-a-half-year-old, which we're wrapped with. Over 10 years, I should say. That's a whole journey in itself. Yeah, so we'd do that. And, and so the health of our relationship was a real one that I really focused on because, you know, if things are out of control at work, you need them in control at home. And also meditation. So my wife and I thought that it was a... Uh, really good idea for both of us because we thought we were both stressed that we needed to learn to meditate so we gave each other the gift of meditation for our paper anniversary which i think was our third year and so we had a meditation coach come around and i'd done meditation from a very young age and and mindfulness but um this uh form of meditation really resonated and it was a fantastic coach and in fact brought him in for the team to learn to meditate and um it was just fantastic to be able to um, have something that would help, that was sustainable, that I look forward to and do every day, even to, to this day, uh, 20 minutes at least once per day, but twice per day when I'm particularly stressed. And just just make sure you've got this uh, nuance of our, our mind that um, is relentless and grinds away in particular times of stress and, and having a mechanism that allows you to kind of uh, decant that and get focused on everything that's before you rather than everything that's probably pretty irrelevant if it's um, grinding away in your mindset. So that, along with just making sure that I, I gave it my all, worked my hardest and was humble about how I went about things and prepared to keep being honest about when mistakes would occur so then I could get onto the mistakes within our team that were occurring and, and fix them because you learn most from that. You learn most from what you do wrong and, 
and I, I think that that was part of the the wise thing that my fellow shareholders did is they they saw that we would learn as a group um, how to do better each time we got something wrong. That's very cool, mate. Thanks. Can you give me an insight into that time? Um, there was that time period, I think, for, say, the couple of years leading up to the sale of the company, and you guys were absolutely cranking, and I think you were offered $30 million, sort of a year before you sold it for $1.6 billion for the company. So clearly it was a very interesting, challenging time where you had some people saying, well, this is what it's valued at, and you're going, you know what, I think this is worth a lot more than that, and we should keep going. And you know, you had the ambassadors, there was the Olympics on. And um, I remember one of the ad campaigns I directed for you, I think it might have been the Ash Hart one, but I remember we were in the post house and we were finishing it and the, the I can't remember who the staff member was at the time, but she's like, quick, we need it. We've got to send it to Raddick. He's at the bank now. And, you know, and I think you're in the, <laughs> I'm reading between the lines, I think you're in the process of having the business valued. And so can you give us an insight into that time period and how you were, clearly you were continuing to promote and sign up expensive ambassadors and make these expensive marketing campaigns. It must have been quite a rocket ride and a very interesting moment in time. Yeah, it was really challenging because, um, you know, we we started turning around the business when I talked about that point where we had this massive debt in the US and we probably started a year before we went and raised that debt in that turnaround. And the debt partner, Goldman's, recognised that and saw that our management team were we're doing that but you know that that was probably a three to four year turnaround that occurred and you know when you you were talking about a turnaround in a business to a group of people that know you well and have been through a lot of ups and downs with you there's a point where you heard a bit little bit less um or believed in a little bit less because you're trying to sell the dream one too many times over and so i'd always believe it would be worth a billion dollars and i'd always talk about that and whilst it was a great aspiration to have in my heart of hearts intuitively i knew that's what we were creating but for others to absolutely believe that without working in the day-to-day and that minutiae like you would be as a ceo you know you got to bring them along for the journey and so yeah so it was really important for us to get evaluation you know i had 15 million bucks worth of debt against the business and 15 percent of the business the other business partners didn't have any debt against the business so you know it was important for us to understand you know what the business could kind of generate as an equity check for everyone and it was a hundred million dollars but it was 30 million after the debt so it would have been 30 million cash and it would have left me bankrupt um and and looking for a, a new gig and so thankfully we managed to hold out and convince the group and it gave us a moment to incentivize the executive team which was a fantastic thing to do um, and it supercharged all of them and and also rewarded them for the journey that they had been on and all of them are, are now multi-multi-millionaires so everyone's done extraordinarily well out of it and it worked out the best thing but yeah that sort of nine to twelve months that turnaround was amazing that year we went on from an estimate of 30 million dollar profit that bain had been brought in to to kind of validate to delivering $150 million profit. And then the year after that, after we'd sold, we delivered a $300 million profit. So the business was just on a monster J curve and and no one could really estimate that except for, if you were me, swashbuckling, uh, Lee back, backing in yourself. <laughs> Incredible, mate. Incredible story. When people have a windfall like that and, you know, suddenly have money, it sort of brings about a whole nother set of challenges. And... Um, 
you know, a lot of people come unstuck when they make a sizable portion of money. Clearly, you've kept your head together and you're working extremely hard. You're not out, you know, you haven't bought the island and have retired out on the island. <laughs> um, how, have you, how have you managed those challenges at this time or through this time? So, yeah, the first thing I did after doing the deal was call my wife, Helen, and say, can you make chicken soup for us? So, um, to, me, to me, it was, um, it was an exhausting process and I was spent. And I had to actually really take care of myself because I had some kind of stress build up and, and some kind of level of shock, PTSD. And, and it took me a long time to kind of get back to a normal rhythm after the extremities we'd gone through. So that was a challenge, but the, the advice was to, to make sure the music didn't stop. I went and did a couple of investments and they were good, but what we did is create a, an investment group and I was lucky enough to convince the executive director from Goldman's that sold um, the Swiss business to create this new group called Light Warrior, which is what Helen said to me when she fell in love with me. I'm a light warrior, I bring light to the world. And, and so. Um, I thought that was a perfect name for an organisation that was creating companies with great cultures and, and trying to create purpose in businesses. And so we're the warriors out there creating light for the world in the way we do business and our foundation is called Light Folk. Um, so we're providing the funds for the good folk to do what they need to do out there in community. And so I split my time with seven not-for-profits and, and around seven for-profits boards. And it's fantastic because it's not like a CEO role where it's seven days a week and the business demands every moment of you. You're there as a chair or a, a director of a business there to support and enable those executives working hard in those businesses to do all they can. So we're there to support and help. But our great passion is continuing to protect this wonderful version of capitalism we have blended with democracy. And the reason why I say it's wonderful, it's not perfect, but it's wonderful to the alternate. And the most successful alternate is, a, is an autocratic uh, capitalist system. I think that unless we focus on what this does well and do more of it better, and, and yes, there's plenty of area for improvement, which we, we need to keep being dynamic in that area of improvement. But you know what we do well, we need to do more of that. And capitalism does a lot of good. Um, so it's about being conscious about what we do well and doing more of it and ensuring that, um, you know, if, if everyone felt fantastic about going to work and felt purpose-driven and was spoken to in a constructive fashion and, and we're on a path to, to developing as an individual, G would have a much happier society. And so I'm, I would love to see governments one day incentivise organisations with tax benefits um, to provide better cultures because, you know, we're going to have a happier society as a result of that. And the amount of times I've been told by partners of people that work with us at Swiss that G, or, or in the organisations we have today, G, my wife, husband, boyfriend, girlfriend is such a better person since coming to work with you in such a better mood and um, has stopped swearing all the time. And you can see they're just under less pressure. If, if all of society like, was like that, she would have been in a much better place. That's very cool, mate. You're a very inspiring capitalist and entrepreneur, having um, worked, you know, within your organisation at that time. Honestly, one of the best cultures of any company I've, I've ever had anything to do with. So very happy to hear that you, you know, spreading that goodwill and, and your approach to business and to life to these various non-for-profits. Um, we don't have a huge amount of time left, but give us a, an example of a couple of these non-for-profits that you're working with. 
first of all, thank you, Lee, for your part in making our culture great. We would not be what we were and still are today having won a number of awards beyond that at Swiss without people like your good self. Um, so the really exciting projects we've got at the moment are things like our um, Conscious Investments, which is now the largest impact fund in Australia. And that's focused on things like providing disability housing. We're the second largest provider of disability housing in Australia. We do social housing as well. We're the largest provider of social housing here in Victoria. And in fact, one of the few uh, that are commercially involved in the area, which we see that growing exponentially over the next many years. We also do solar. We're one of the largest providers of behind the, the meter solar panels in the country. And so that funds on a trajectory of now well over 100 million of other people's money we invest. And my dream is to have your superannuation where you tick, you want a balanced fund, you want an international fund that's a bit higher risk or a, with a blend of higher risk assets for a higher return or a, you know, a really safe level investment where you might be investing in bonds for lower level returns. But you have another box which I want to invest for impact where every investment it goes to things like social bonds where we're, we're helping um, uh, First Nation kids um, stay in school or uh, uh, people that have been un- long-time unemployed stay in jobs with, with mentorship. So we work in partnership with the government delivering those sorts of services. And so, you know, there can be good returns for, again, things that capitalism does do and could go out of its way in the future and is one of the biggest and fastest growing areas of, of investment, um, investing for good. And then the other thing we're, we're really excited about is we are getting back into the, the supplements game. We've got a brand called Wonderlust, which we're about to launch into 3,000 pharmacies across the country. And so um, that'll be all whole food, nutrition, um, herbal products and actually the brand has been around for 20 years. It's the biggest yoga, music and, and food festival in the world. It, it had over 50 shows going on globally before COVID. But we see that there's a real opportunity to create a product that will uh, support that sort of brand. Um, and we have a couple other practitioner brands and so forth. I could go on. I even bought an island. So I did buy the island, the irresponsible thing, <laughs> uh, with Richard Branson um, and Brett Godfrey um, and a fellow called Stuart Giles. And, and that's up in Noosa. It's called Make Peace Island. I can only stay there four weeks of the year. So it is, it's just a nice change of scenery. Um, and, 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 and we do try and run it as a business that breaks even. So, um, yeah, the island's part of the, the cabinet. Oh, mate, fantastic. Well, you might as well have a bit of fun with the money. Good on you. How have you, I mean, obviously you touched on it then with uh, the Wonderlust shows that were cancelled. Just quickly, how have you sort of pivoted I'm pretty sick of that word, as most of us are now. But over the last year, how have you made the most of this time and adapted? And, um, you know, I imagine you're ready to come out of the gates. Yeah, so we had a a restaurant business of over 20 restaurants and it had um, about 10% of our business were internationals. And we quickly saw our international business dry up with the bushfires. And so the bushfires happened and then COVID happened. And we, we just had to get out of that business and it would have been really difficult to continue to carry on because you essentially weren't able to try it, they weren't takeaway restaurants. So whilst that was so difficult, it enabled us to focus on the businesses that have thrived through that, like a lot we've talked about. We've, we've got a, 
an advertising business, we've got a bonds business, we've got a business called Hydrolite overseas, which is thriving, and you know, we've got a milk business, and, and all of those businesses have, have gone well through COVID. And I suppose focusing on what we do well and doing more of that and having the resource then to invest back into it and support those organizations has been paramount. And trying to do that with as clear a head as possible. But gee, it was it was pretty scary there for a number of weeks and and having businesses that are involved in international territories where i'm pretty thankful for how it's all worked out here good one mate last um thing to wrap up on i guess for any young entrepreneurs or people out there who are, are facing a career change based on what's happened over the last year any words of wisdom for those people i think that ultimately perseverance is absolutely number one uh, but it's perseverance not only in putting up and, and working your guts out because it just doesn't happen automatically, but it's perseverance in finding what works and doing more of it, but also accepting what goes wrong is actually a, is a positive and, and learn from it, talk about it and reiterate and make sure that you, you become better as a result of those mistakes. Sounds good, mate. Well, look, absolute pleasure to chat today. Keep up the fine work. Oh, thank you, Lee. It's a real privilege to have a chat about our story, so I really appreciate your time. Okay. Thanks, mate. Cheers. I trust you are inspired by this week's guest. I know I certainly was. To find out more about Radic and the work he's doing, head to lightwarrior.com. Thanks to everyone who's been rating and reviewing the podcast. If you're on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, feel free to write a short review and, of course, tell your friends, share on social media. You know the drill. There's lots of stellar guests coming up, but until next week, live large. The Blank Canvas is produced by Lee Rogers and me, Rin MacDonald, with audio support by Jason Murphy at Gas Inc. and music by Rodrigo Bustos. This has been a Milovich production.